Hi, welcome to Everything is Arbitrary. I'm Erin Stewart. I'm a writer living in Canberra in Australia. On this podcast, I'm going to explore how various things we take for granted as solid, true, irrefutable have actually come as a result of randomness, political expediency, one-off whims, this kind of thing. In fact, we're living out arbitrariness. It can be easy to imagine instances where things are radically different. Sometimes we don't even have to imagine. So people in different parts of the world might already be living quite differently to us, or perhaps historically our ancestors live really differently. So if that all sounds a bit abstract, that's cool. Uh, You'll see what I mean really quickly in this episode, where I'm going to argue that time itself is arbitrary. Time is a good topic to start with because it traverses different fields of study like physics, maths, history, anthropology, psychology, sociology and philosophy. And also because time is pervasive, it's key to the way we understand our lives and act in it. There's also elements of time that I think are probably not very arbitrary, which I'll also talk about. And it's no coincidence that this episode is being posted on News Day either. I want you to know that your celebrations last night were somewhat arbitrary. All that happens on you is, is that the Earth is roughly in the same position in relation to the Sun as it was 365 days ago. But it's cool. It, it is really cool. Because just because everything's arbitrary doesn't mean you shouldn't celebrate. So we experience time as the movement from the past towards the future via the present. The present is an immeasurably small amount of time, so by the time I get to the end of this sentence, which will happen eventually, uh, the beginning of it will be considered the past. Our experience of time can be really, really subjective. Uh, Sometimes we forget that it's passing, like if we're really engrossed in a task. Um, Sometimes time seems to move super slowly, like if you're watching a pot boiling, bored at work, or what have you. The ancient Greek philosopher Seneca pointed out that we tend to feel bad if we waste money or resources, but time is incredibly finite. We're all going to die someday. We tend to waste it without that much thought. Um, So this is a quote from him. It's not that we have so little time, but that we lose so much. The life that we receive is not short, but we make it so. We are not ill-provided, but we use what we have wastefully. So time is conceptually tied up with death. Uh, It's about how we take advantage of our life before we die, which in a way can make it hard to think about or consider. Um, How we use our time has also taken on philosophical and moral importance. So this is where we get the sense that we could be wasting time. But while we experience time as mostly subjective, we also see time as objective. Any second is the same length as any other second, even if it might not always feel that way. And a lot of people in the world use devices like clocks and watches to tell us what the objective time is. So anthropologists have a name for this objective sense of time, which is clock time or clock and calendar time. And Capitalist societies or other societies focused on productivity and work and discipline are actually quite obsessed with clock time. Historically speaking, it's fairly unusual to want to measure time as precisely as we do. 
like if you just think about it so most of us will wear a watch or we'll use a phone that will tell us exactly what time it is smartphones and smartwatches are very very precise time measurement instruments because they collect time data from a cellular network um, perhaps also using gps technology so we arrange to meet up with people to start work at specific moments in the day and while you might be early or late we'll have a shared understanding of whether you are early or late a lot of us have a subjective sense of being busy or of trying to fit in many things in a short period of time uh, or of racing against time. Uh, part of that is the reality of having a lot of responsibilities, but a lot of the stress is imposed by clock time as well. So these are feelings that you get from being in a culture with unusually regimented relationship to time. The level of awareness we have of what precisely the time is isn't really necessary. So we need the precise time for calculations for scientific investigations like experiments where a microsecond might matter. Um, probably in sporting events where you can win or lose a race in a microsecond, that kind of thing. There's some medications like antiretroviral medicines that treat HIV uh, where you want to time the dosages very accurately but even then it's not down to the second or the minute Accurate timekeeping has been important for sea navigation as well. And it's good not to waste other people's time with being late or whatever. Uh, but for them, for most people, this level of time precision and regimentation isn't really called for. Clock time can be an imposition, which I feel like anyone who has to get up early for work can attest to. Uh, there's this feeling of a loss of agency, perhaps like because you want to keep sleeping or you want to do something but the clock is telling you that you don't get a choice you have to go I remember this feeling most vividly um it was back in 2010 um I was an anthropology undergraduate and I was on field school in Vietnam and we were staying in this farming community and in the really early morning I think it was 5 a.m this loud noise blared through the whole town and there were these speakers affixed to tall poles through the rice paddies. It was just so loud. Like, it was impossible to keep sleeping and quite difficult even just to have a conversation with another person. So not knowing Vietnamese, I, I don't really know what was being said over the loudspeaker. It kind of had the cadence of news or something. And it, it was news and weather reports, uh, which sounds benign, but I was informed. It was also propaganda. Um, and to contextualise a little, these rural communities are very poor but families do have the resources and capabilities to get themselves awake with an alarm clock um, and they can watch tv news on their own schedule if they want to it's it's not a bad idea to have these kinds of loudspeakers for emergency broadcasts and such but the function of this information delivery was really a means of social control um, it was to get people awake and farming and being productive and to regiment their lives sometimes you get these reminders of time from the environment that are nice. I often feel that way about, say, church bells or calls to prayer, even as a non-religious person, you know, as someone who doesn't have to actually act on these sounds or the, the sound of the news coming on television or radio. There's a sense of the passage of time and maybe the feeling of connection you might have with everyone else who's hearing the same thing. There's an art piece, uh, Christian Markley's The Clock, which plays with this idea really nicely. So it's a 24 hour long film made up of clips from other films, like um, just regular kind of Hollywood film, but 
but also like independent films and world films and so on, where the time is continually shown on screen. So the film itself is a clock uh, in that it tells you the time, but it also reminds you of the sort of things people get up to at each point in time. So for instance, if you see it at 5pm, there's lots of shots of peak hour traffic, or in the morning there's lots of scenes of people having breakfast. Um, it's a nice feeling. There's also a neat neat app you can get produced by the Plum Village Buddhist Monastery uh, that will make a bell sound at random intervals, inviting you to bring your awareness to the present whenever it rings. And these things go to show um, that the reminder of time can be both a chance to connect or, you know, in my early example about village, a means of social control. So time doesn't have to have one meaning or the other. It's function will transform in different contexts and for different purposes. My experience of travelling to other parts of the world with different relationships to clock time have been pretty interesting as well. So we have this concept of island time, which denotes a more casual, less regimented relationship with clock time, for instance. Um, there are also cultures that are way more regi regimented than I'm used to. So my experience of Switzerland might be a good example where if someone says that the bus is leaving at 11, like, you better be there by 10.59, or it's going to leave without you. So human relationships with time can be pretty variable too. So generally, humans do seem to have quite a close relationship with time. But the way Westerners and highly commercial societies understand it as something that you subjectively feel but with an objective, measurable, consistent chronology, is not universal. Um, it is arbitrary. It's a product of our culture, our history, and the technology we have available to us. Um, time isn't always viewed as purely linear or appropriately visualised, say, on a horizontal line. It can be conceptualised as being more vertical and relational, uh, or thought about in reference to creation times, or in reference to one's ancestors and things that have occurred in the past, can also be conceptualised as still imprinted on and even part of the present. So you're never really truly separated from the past or future, and there's still a sense of eternity even, um, where every moment can be wrapped up in any other. There's this cool ethnography of the experience of time for the Avelin of Papua New Guinea, uh, where Richard Scaglione argues that um, experience of time is cyclical and tied to, in this case to yam growing seasons. So in a linear conception of time, events will cause gradual change and there's no way to go back to what once was. But under a more episodic or cyclical conception of time, like current events are thought to be kind of repetitions in an unchanging like overall temporal reality. So for instance, when yams are growing, you want to live quietly and peacefully. Things like violence and conflict and even sex are considered taboo. Yam growers will diligently perform their role of cultivating the food. And then after the harvest, you relax. You can do all the things that you weren't allowed to do before. And, and so like time has these sort of cycles of intensity and relaxation, growth and harvest. And it all starts over again and again and again. Obviously, culture and practices get more complicated um, than what I have either the time or knowledge to describe here. But in essence, new yams, new yams are thought to replace older ones. 
and in some sense literally do. Um, it's particularly good yams will be cut up and planted for the next crop. And the soul of one yam is thought to live on in the form of a new one. Uh, new people are also thought to replace old ones. And indeed, generally each child, say, will be named after someone who's died. They're thought to take on the identity of their namesake. There can, there can be epoch changes and one-off kind of catastrophic events that don't repeat. Um, but generally time is experienced in these regenerative cycles. I am aware of one culture, perhaps, perhaps, in the remote Amazon, the Piraha tribe, uh, where there's evidence that they don't solidly conceptualise past and future. But this case is kind of, it's kind of controversial, um, and it's controversial in like anthropological circles and like linguistic circles. So um, it's probably uh, a good idea to be somewhat skeptical about reports about it. Um, so I'll, I'll link to a New Yorker piece about it. But basically the observation is that people in this culture are interested in talking about direct experience. So not about history or a time before their lives began. So this then limits kind of cultural memory. So for example, they don't have a kind of detailed creation story that you tend to find in other cultures. Um, there also doesn't seem to be much interest in the future. So they might not preserve foods for later, for instance, or just eat what they have. Um, reportedly, they seem like happy people. But despite these examples of different relationships of time, uh, one anthropologist of time, and yes, that is a job title, Alfred Gell, argues that there's probably nothing radically different about the way time is experienced in different cultures. So this is a quote from him. Um, there's no fairyland where people experience time in a way that's market markedly unlike the way we experience it ourselves, where there is no past, present and future, where time stands still or chases its own tail or swings back and forth like a pendulum. This is another controversy, in fact. Like, how do people experience something so fundamental like time? And I don't actually know what the answer is. Um, my personal view, though, uh, is that the ubiquity of the clock has informed sort of the orientation people uh, have toward time in my culture. So I think it is likely a case, and, and Jal would point this out too, that our regimentation around clock time is, isn't new. It's more of an extension of how people organise their lives when they didn't have clocks to refer to. So, for, for instance, the fact that we eat meals during predictable intervals through the day and don't tend to work at night, say, unless we're shift workers. It's part of an inherent, like, kind of personal and social life that we've never really needed clocks to tell us what to do. Um, clock times are just a useful reference point. But for me, it's also relatively easy to imagine different ways of experience time that aren't linear, that have the greatest, greater focus on belief systems or the environment or the way things grow and shift and change or the way in which the world has cyclical, predictable patterns. It's also possible to imagine what it's like to focus on the present, just on what's here and right now. This is something that some of us like to purposely cultivate if we're into mindfulness and this kind of thing. I kind of think of the Tremaphodorians, say, of, um, in Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, how they experience time as happening all at once. 
I mean, obviously that's just science fiction, but the fact that you can imagine these like different conceptualizations of time to me, like, it kind of suggests that there's good cause to imagine our experience of time as being quite particular to us. And, you know, there's room here to at least entertain the idea that other humans could have quite fundamentally different relationships with it. Timekeeping devices have a long history through the world, which maybe then attests to a non-arbitrary, kind of essential human interest in the movement of time and in having external signals of how much time has passed. So time measurement has come in forms like the candle clock, hourglasses, water-powered clocks, observations of the sky, observations of tides, and so on. Uh, these are ancient technologies or knowledge bases that have existed through the world. So sundials, they've been a thing for a long time. So the ancient Egyptians definitely had them. Uh, sundials work because humans have noticed that over the course of daylight hours, the sun changes position. Um, it rises in the east and sets in the west and moves between those two points over the day. Of course, the sun's not actually moving. I'll just put that out there. The Earth is revolving on its axis, um, giving us the impression that the sun is rising and setting. But in reality, we're, we're the ones revolving. The sun's kind of staying still. But anyway, as the sun seemingly travels through the sky, the shadows change as the angle that the sun is hitting objects also changes. And if you take note of those changes, which is easier when you don't have Facebook or whatever to distract you, uh, you can map out its trajectory. When you have a sundial, you can set up a kind of stick, and as the sun changes angles, the stick will cast a shadow in different directions. And then you can mark out the lines that the different shadows can make. So for example, when the shadow hits the first line, you might call that 6 o'clock. And when it's halfway between the first and second lines, you might call that 6.30. And when the shadow hits the second line, that's time 7, and so on. And how many lines you draw and what you call those lines they are actually kind of arbitrary. So to go much further, I need to talk about the way the Earth revolves around the sun. So maybe you can zone out if you, if you like paid attention in school and already know this. I'll explain by talking a bit about time from a planetary perspective. Fun stuff. So yeah, real fun. So the Earth circles on the sun on a bit of a tilt, which creates the north-south divide, with one hemisphere leaning towards the sun and one leaning away. So if your hemisphere is tilting towards the sun, you'll experience summer. If you're tilted away from the sun, it'll be winter. If you're in the northern hemisphere, the further north you live, the more you'll be tilted away from the sun um, in winter and toward it in summer. And in the southern hemisphere, the same applies to more extreme southerly latitudes. Though the more you're tilted towards the sun, the more sunlight you'll experience because there's more angles the sun can shine down upon you. So then the more you're tilted away from the sun, the less you'll see it. So then at the extreme ends of the planet, like in the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic Circle, you get months of nonstop sunlight and months of complete darkness. You're so kind of tilted away or towards the sun, that even the fact that the Earth is spinning doesn't really change anything. It doesn't give you night and day. The seasonal variations can make a huge difference to the way you go about living your life, what you're able to do when it's safe to go outside even. It can be all pervasive if you live super far north or super far south. 
But these variations don't happen so much on the equator because the sun is at a consistent ang angle to the equator year-round. The planet's tilt really isn't a huge deal. So on the equator, you get 12 hours of sunlight and 12 hours of nighttime every single day. So the closer you live to the equator, the more consistent your daylight and nighttime hours will be through the whole year. So from about 1500 BC, the ancient Egyptians divided their sundials into 12 parts, which is basically saying there's 12 intervals between sunrise and sunset, which is actually a similar way of dividing daylight hours into roughly 12 as we do. Over the year, there's going to be variations in the length of those intervals because you get more sunlight hours at certain points of the year than others. But then again, like Egypt is pretty close to the equator, so you wouldn't get massive discrepancies between interval lengths the way you would further north. So it wouldn't be correct to say that the ancient Egyptians had the same concept of an objective hour as we do because the length of the intervals are going to be variable. So an hour will be longer in summer than in winter. So other timekeeping devices include the water clock, which is cool if you want to measure the time when it's cloudy or nighttime. Um, and they've existed in many parts of the world in different forms for ages. So in its most basic form, and you get, you get like crazy innovations that make it more complicated and also more accurate. But yeah, basically you've got a bowl with a hole at the bottom. You fill the bowl with water, the water starts to pour out of the hole, and you can track time by noting the shifting water level. The ancient Romans seem to have been the ones to decide that the day begins at midnight, halfway between sunset and sunrise. Um, it's only arbitrary, kind of arbitrary to set it at this point if you're a Roman, because while there's heaps of societies where the day starts at sunrise or will end at sunset, in Europe the length of hours of sunlight are, do really vary so much through the year that the start of the days would possibly too, be too variable to be useful as a measurement. So they designated 12 daylight hours and 12 nighttime hours, which again meant that the amount of time within an hour was variable depending on the time of the year. So as well, the first hour of daylight was still designated as one o'clock, for instance, and midnight would be referred to as six o'clock at night. So we don't get the day starting at 12 o'clock or zero, zero hours if you use 24 hour time um, until much later. And actually that comes along with the invention of the mechanical clock which I'll get to really soon. In ancient Greece, it became apparent that we needed a fixed length of time to define an hour in order to do certain calculations. So that's one of the kind of reasons why you do need precise time is to be able to do certain scientific and mathematical observations. So Hipparchus proposed dividing the day into 24 equal hours, equinoctical hours or what the length of an hour would be at the equinox. So there's exactly 12 hours of sunlight and 12 hours of darkness in a day. So just quickly, there's two equinoxes in a year, one in spring, one in autumn. Uh, and that's when the tilt of the Earth is such that both the southern and northern hemispheres are getting an equal amount of light from the sun. So the sunlight is spread equally across the planet, which is a kind of like, this sounds nice, you know. Anyway, um, even with the concept of Equinoctical hours, um, ordinary non-sciencey folks uh, kept using hours that varied in length as part of their daily lives until the invention of the mechanical clock. So really until the 14th century. 
So the oldest surviving European mechanical clock was made in the 1300s. Um, there's evidence that the problem of accurate timekeeping has preoccupied some humans for quite some time. So Galileo noticed in the 1600s that pendulums could keep a regular tempo, which would make it helpful for timekeeping if adapted for clocks, with the use of things like springs and weights. Um, it was the Industrial Revolution that made timekeeping really important for the purpose of getting to work on time, leaving on time, calculating overtime, and so on. Um, anthropologist David Graeber points out that this is where we get the concept that you can pay for someone else's time. And so measuring it has a clear economic purpose and implications. So in these contexts, time can also be pretty manipulated. So some factories wouldn't allow workers to bring their own timepieces into work because the owner was then able to mess with the factory clock. Um, so really trying to make people work longer hours without having to pay them extra. So this manipulation, the fact that it was a practice, then made it really important from a labour rights perspective to have an objective sense of time so that you know when you're working for someone else and when you're on your own leisure time. Um, of course, this is a really weird way of thinking about it because your time is always really yours. Being paid doesn't make you stop experience time or like give your time to someone else. But anyway, this, this is kind of where these notions kind of come from. Clock technology also developed as a result of scene navigation in the 1800s, particularly in Britain. Um, so at sea, conditions are way too rough for pendulums to work. Timekeeping um, is really important for sea navigation and exploration because it allows navigators to compare the expected astrological observations of their place of departure with the astrological observations they might make during their travels. They can figure out if they're a few hours ahead or behind where they left, which is useful information, which they'd also be able to use with other documents and observations to piece together a really accurate account of their current location. So our relationship with time actually partly comes from the realities of sea trade, of exploration, colonisation, and definitely imperialism as well. So with are not a huge race for European colonizers to more or less take over the world and exploit it, there wouldn't be as many financial incentives to perfect mechanical timekeeping. The way clock time does figure into our lives, it's, it's an indirect result of historical and political conditions. So that's something to think about maybe next time you check your watch. And we now have the atomic clock. Uh, the atomic clock was developed in the 1950s which actually kind of radically redefined a second, even though it's still the same length of time as it ever was. So a second is one eighty-six thousandth four hundredth of a day. But it's also the time that elapses during um, <laughs> 9,192,631,770 cycles of the radiation produced by the transition between the two levels of the cesium-133 atom. So if that has a ring of arbitrariness to it, to you, um, yeah, that's like the point of the show. But um, it is actually the same as the same amount of time as a second. That was Bexel. And it's actually a very precise and consistent way to measure time, much more so than a mechanical clock. 
So in your atomic clock, the way atoms naturally oscillate as kind of act as pendulums, but these oscillations occur much more rapidly and they're way, way more stable. So if you have a pendulum clock, you'll know that you roughly have to reset it like every day or like every week. And if you don't, it gets further and further out of sync with the objective time. Um, Atomic clocks, on the other hand, have an expected error of one second every roughly 100 million years. And if that's just still unacceptable to you, like, God, how can you have something so imprecise? Even more accurate ways of measuring atomic oscillations are currently in development, so stay tuned to that. Before all this, though, people still manage to live their lives without clock time. There's lots of methods here. So we've got overdrinking, which is a practice you find in Native American tribes, where you just drink a ton of water before you go to bed. And so when you're busting to go to the toilet, you'll wake up. Other people would have trained themselves to wake up at the first light of dawn. So depending on where you are, that could be really early in summer and really late in winter, but it could also be a really consistent time to wake up if you're living on the equator. There's lots of non-mechanical alarm systems as well, including actually literally hiring people to be your alarm, uh, which was somewhat popular during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, The position of the sun has also always been a useful way of organising life. So that's both from a psychological perspective as, as well as a physical perspective. So we tend to develop time-related associations. So say when the sun begins to set, you might get hungry because you just always have dinner at around that time. Animals do this all the time. Um, you know, like when it gets dark to the point you need to turn on your inside lights and the dog will start barking for food. Or um, I used to live near a man who seemed to regularly feed ducks at about five o'clock. So by 5.45, those ducks would be like congregating outside his door. So... <laughs> Like, it, like animals can be very accurate timekeepers. Um, when people wanted to set up a meeting time um, and they didn't have clocks as well, like, they were able to do that. So one of their strategies was just to point to a part of the sky and say, we'll meet when the sun gets to there. Throughout human history as well, it's actually really common to measure time in practical terms. So, for example, in medieval Europe, you might tell someone that the time it takes to walk to a neighbor's house is the same amount of time as two boilings of an egg. And so it's what you do in time that was the measure. So we've got less of an external sense of time and more of that we measure time by what we're able to do in it. And we also have natural circadian rhythms. And again, animals ah, have this as well. Um, so do plants and fungi. So, you know, your mushroom has a, has a circadian rhythm. It's roughly in line with the day. So a 24-hour cycle our bodies go through, although it can vary among different people. So these are endogenous, and they come from within, they're from the body itself. And it essentially describes the patterns of hormones, brainwave activity, um, for those of us who have brains, um, cell regeneration, and so on, which govern our sleeping and eating patterns. At the same time, external factors can modulate our circadian rhythm, which is why if we go from one time zone to another, we'll eventually be able to change our circadian rhythm so that it's in line with the place of our destination. It's also why sleep experts will tell you not to look at blue light from screens just before bed because we associate that kind of light with daytime and of being awake. So it can kind of override that circadian 
rhythm pattern that is in within us. So without the clock, and even without the sun actually, um, our bodies will naturally go through time-based changes that will influence what we do as well. We use a sexagismal system of timekeeping, which sounds somewhat erotic, but it isn't sadly. It's just it just means base 60. So there's 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 12 is a divisor of 60. So the fact that there's two lots of 12 hours in a day is also related. Um, this is the counting system that the ancient Sumerians liked back in 2000 BC. Uh, they were in that Middle East area, around present-day southern Iraq. Uh, they passed the system along to the Babylonians in a similar sort of area who passed it on and on, and we still use it today. Base 60 is a pretty smart way of organising time, because 60 is a highly divisible number. Um, we see that on analogue clock bases. So if you want to look on to an analogue clock right now and see what I mean, um, go for it. So when dealing with the minute hand, there's 60 marks denoting a minute each, uh, the longer marks dividing the clock into five minute intervals, then four significant timekeeping milestones in 15 minute intervals, so quarter past the hour, half past, quarter two, and the hour itself. Uh, then with the hour hand, you've got the 12 marks to indicate what hour it is, plus if you also have a second hand, there's 60 marks indicating what the second is. There's a lot of detail you can put in a little circle. Um, and you can get that level of detail because the base 60 system accommodates it really easily. Uh, not that the Sumerians or Babylonians had watches, obviously. <laughs> but they were smart uh, to think of numbers in this way. It is arbitrary, though. In a lot of um, Western societies, we like to use base 10 or metric systems for most non-time-related things like currency or measurement. I'm just going to ignore imperial measurement right now because that really warrants its own episode. So anyway, um, base 10 might feel a bit less arbitrary just because we have 10 fingers on our hands, so our body is a counting tool, basically. But it's not too hard to count in base 60 because what you can do, we use one hand to easily count to 12, and 12 by 5 is 60, so it's not too hard to work with. So if, if you want to know how to count to 12 with one hand... <laughs> You can play along, just get your hand out in front of you. So you, with your thumb, you count along each finger bone of your four fingers. So the spaces between each knuckle. And there are 12 of those. So yeah, nice. So yeah, they didn't have to choose 60. 60 is a good choice though. Um, metric time is also a thing. Uh, the metric system was invented in the late 1700s in post-revolutionary France. One of the ideas floated as part of their suite of measurement reforms <laughs> was the idea of a 10-hour day, so the 100-minute hour and the 100-second minute. The length of a metric second would be the equivalent of roughly 0.9 of our regular seconds, and so they had the idea as well of the decimal calendar, which I'll talk about later. So French did actually use metric time for two years in the revolutionary period, from 1793 to 1795, but it didn't really catch on. <laughs> there are definite problems with the calendar because the, it, like, it was all just messy. But anyway, one reason why objective time 
is useful is because everyone within a time zone can largely agree on what it is. So if you're the only one using a certain system of measuring time, it becomes really pointless. So that said, um, computers do use decimal time, at least internally. So Unix time is a timekeeping system which defines the time right now as the number of seconds that have passed since midnight January the 1st, 1970. Uh, Microsoft has a similar system. So the current time is the number of 100 nanosecond intervals that have passed since midnight January 1st, 1601. It's a lot easier for computers to deal with time data in this way. Um, so you're just, you're just dealing with numbers, like whole numbers. And then when it's time to tell the, the user what time it is, uh, you can just convert the internal number to a time and date that makes sense to humans. So that's also why, um, I guess you were wondering, why 2K was not a thing. So you know there was that weird fear that computers would stop working when the year ticked over to 2000 because computers would be confused and not know how to deal with this movement from the year 99 to double zero. It's like they'd think it was 1900 or something. Um, I was 10 at the time, so I, I don't really remember um, how silly the idea seemed. Um, but it definitely does seem silly now. So computers just don't interact with time like that. They just don't like interpret time in that way because they're using decimal time. So it goes to show that there's all kinds of ways we can represent time um, and all kinds of ways people do represent time. So in Ethiopia as well, for example, many people use a time system that's sort of similar to their ancient Egyptian sundial system where there are 12 hours between dawn and dusk and another 12 hours between dusk and dawn. So the first hour of sunlight, which might be six o'clock in East Africa time, is designated as one o'clock. When the sun sets at 12, and when the sun is at its height, so a time I'd call noon or midday, it's six o'clock. Ethiopia is really close to the equator, which as I've talked about is why this system is workable. So each day will have a similar amount of daylight hours to any other day. But it's also another reminder that the way we choose to measure time isn't the only possible way or necessarily even the best way. It's really arbitrary. So let's talk about calendars. Uh, in the Gregorian calendar system, which is the calendar most of the world uses today, so a year is 365 days, which is roughly the amount of the time it takes for the Earth to have made a revolution around the sun. I say roughly because it actually takes 365.2425 days for the Earth to revolve around the sun, which is why we need a leap year every four years, um, and a leap year is 366 days, to average things out a bit. Um, but even that's not quite enough, um, because it's it's not... 365.25 days. It's 365.2425 days. So we need a really odd rule around leap years, which says every year that's divisible by four is a leap year, except for years that are exactly divisible by 100. So those won't be leap years. But these centurial years are leap years if they are also exactly divisible by 400. So, so if you remember, um, that's why 2000 was a leap year, but 1900 wasn't. The Gregorian calendar comes out of the Julian calendar, which was invented by the Roman emperor Julius Caesar. So before him, 
um, the early Roman calendar was essentially a lunar calendar. So instead of keeping track of where the Earth is in relation to the Sun, we're looking at the moon phases. And actually the word month is related to the word moon etymologically. So we see lots of cultures fit their calendar around moon cycles. The main issue with this is that you get out of sync with the seasons quite easily. So in the Roman calendar before Caesar got his hands on it, the year was 355 days long. But what will eventually happen over time is that New Year will keep getting earlier and earlier. And in Rome, it'll be like January and the weather will be more similar to what you expect in June, which means that your harvests are all out of whack and the month isn't really a meaningful descriptor of what's happening in your environment. So the Romans had some weird years that were like 377 or 378 days long, which was not streamlined and very confusing. The calendar was also what you'd call an incomplete calendar, which makes accurate record keeping and planning really hard. So in a complete calendar system, each day has its own unique name. So for example, there's only one December 3rd, 2012. There's no, you can't confuse it with a different date. It's just, there's no other day called that. In the early Roman calendar, though, there were 10 designated months with unique names. And then a whole lot of days just kind of lumped in together and called winter. So you have all these days that didn't have names at all. The other problem was that this early Roman calendar was very much open to being politically manipulated. The chief priests in Rome controlled which years were longer and which were shorter. This matters because a Roman magistrate's term in office was linked to a calendar year. So the priests could decide to arbitrarily lengthen a year if they liked the guy in office, or shorten it if they didn't like them. And historical evidence seems to indicate that they enjoyed doing this. So Caesar saw fit to develop a new calendar, defining a year as the time it takes for the Earth to revolve around the Sun, so 365.25 days. So you slightly miscalculated it. Um, and by the way, they did know that the Earth revolved around the Sun. So he added 67 new days to the year 46 BC, making it 445 days long. And then the following year would have the now customary 365 days. So instead of having only 10 months, he decided there'd be 12. And he named one of them after himself July, related to the word Julius. And the other creative month was eventually renamed to be August by another politician who was involved with the calendar reform after Caesar. So if you ever wondered why the ninth month, September, has the prefix sept, which means seven, uh, or the tenth month, October, has a prefix meaning eight, octo, uh, November um, is the eleventh month, but November means nine, and so on. Um, it's because of this. Like, September used to be the seventh month, but then two more months, July and August, were added in before it, and we're just in a very long post-Caesar hangover period. So eventually people discovered that Caesar had overestimated uh, the length of a year by 11 minutes. Uh, so, I mean, it's not a huge mistake, but it is a mistake that would render the calendar 10 days out of sync with the seasons again by 1582, which is not bad. Like, I, he did a good job, I think. Um, given that the calendar was more or less workable for, for a millennia. Um, but people are interested in precision. So... The Gregorian calendar was developed. So those 10 days were erased from 1582 
So the 4th of October 1582 was followed by the 15th of October 1582. And people were genuinely very distressed by the idea that 10 days had been stolen from them. And their problem, IMO, was that they didn't understand that the calendar is an arbitrary construct. They should have listened to this podcast. So the Gregorian calendar is dominant, particularly in global business. Um, but lots of people observe it alongside their own cultural or religious calendars. Um, religious calendars might be based on the lunar or solar cycles, on the zodiac, so the arrangements of um, different celestial bodies, or a mix of these things. Um, historically, calendars have always been important for keeping track of ceremonial dates and holy days and observances. So it's a, it's a really religious kind of invention to begin with. And actually, the Gregorian calendar itself is a religious calendar. It was devised by Pope Gregory and one of its functions was to keep track of when Easter is meant to fall. Religious calendars can also include the Hebrew calendar, the Islamic calendar, the Buddhist calendar, the Sikh calendar. Um, there are three different Hindu calendars which are used by um, Hindus in different regions of the world. Um, some branches of Christianity, such as um, the Russian Orthodox Church, will still use the Julian calendar and so on. So although China predominantly uses the Gregorian calendar today, the traditional Ch Chinese calendar gets used alongside it. And it's used to determine when holidays like Lunar New Year or Chinese New Year and various lantern festivals will fall, as well as good auspicious dates for things like weddings, so like days that are lucky. Um, the calendar uses a mix of solar and lunar elements. So a new month will always start on a new moon. And a new year is defined as either the second or sometimes third new month after the winter solstice. So because you still want your calendar to be in sync with the solar year, you can then adjust the length of the year to make up for it by adding a leap month when you need to. The years come in 12-year cycles, where each year is associated with a different animal. Um, and China also has quite an expansive field of influence, so you have similar calendar structures in other parts of Asia too. Then we've got the Ethiopian calendar, which is the principal calendar of Ethiopia. Um, it's also used in Eritrea as a Christian religious calendar too. In this calendar, there's 12 months of 30 days, and then you have a 13th month of 5 days, or 6 days in a leap year. So leap years are exactly every 4 years. There's no complicated rule there. The year also starts on what would be called September 11 on the Gregorian calendar. They're also labelled slightly differently, so the year 2000 in the Ethiopian calendar was 2007 in the Gregorian calendar. So the reason why the years are different is because of different calculations of what year Jesus was born. So in the Gregorian calendar, the years are divided up into AD, um, Anno Domini, uh, which is Latin for the year of our Lord, and BC, before Christ. Um, and then in academic and more sec secular circles, you would call them CE, Common Era, and BCE, before Common Era. We're in Common Era, or AD. The people who lived before Jesus was born were BC, or BCE, um, which accounted kind of in the negative. So 1 BC is one year before Jesus was born, and then, say, 100 BC would be a hundred years before he was born. Obviously, people in BC times didn't think of themselves as being in the year negative one or anticipated even Jesus' birth. They had other ways of marking years. 
Um, so in Japan and China, for instance, these are labeled in relation to changing dynasties. So for instance, it might be year 50 of Emperor X's rule, and then when Emperor X dies and Emperor Y takes his place, then it's year one of Emperor Y's rule. The ancient Greeks divided years into Olympiads, so an era was the four years in between Olympic Games. Other calendar systems speculate on what day the world began, and the year it is now is just the number of years that have elapsed since then. Um, yeah, so yeah, lots of ways that people label where they are in history. But in our BC slash AD system, there's no year zero, so time went from 1 BC to AD 1. I just want to point out here that the entire way most of us understand historical time is so fundamentally shaped by Christianity. Um, so I'm not religious myself, so I find that pretty arbitrary that we call this year, say, 2020, which is a nice round number, the start of a new decade, um, a year that previous governments have planned for as a really landmark time in the future. When, you know, we could have easily called like 73 db marking 73 years since the birth of david bowie or um aldous huxley in his dystopian book brave new world uh, makes a similar observation um and in that world the year is defined as how long it's been since the invention of the ford model t and the year in the book is set in is af that is after ford uh, 632 and then the challenge is that if you're going to define your years around the birth of Jesus, you probably want to know maybe when he was exactly born. So scholars state his birth somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, which would put the Gregorian calendar out of whack. And the reason why Ethiopian calendar years are so different is because they just have a different guess about when, what year he was born in. The Persian calendar is also used today as the main calendar for Iran and Afghanistan, and it's said to be an incredibly accurate solar calendar. So the new year begins at the closest midnight to the spring equinox, specifically at the Iran standard time meridian at longitude 52.5 degrees east, uh, which runs about 400 kilometers east of Tehran. The precise equinox is where the centre of the sun is visible directly above that line, that imaginary line. So this means that on the Gregorian calendar, the Persian New Year would start around the 20th of March. A year in the Persian calendar is divided into 12 months. Uh, the first six months have 31 days, uh, and then months 7 through 11 have 30 days. The last month has 29 days in a common year and 30 days in a leap year. Because the year is tied so tightly to solar observations, whether or not it's a leap year has nothing to do with dividing it by four or anything like that. The length of the year will just be determined by which midnight is closer to the equinox. This means that the calendar has less error when it comes to keeping the days aligned with the movement of the sun. Um, and there's less need for corrections that we find in the Gregorian calendar. Years are also designated differently than to the Gregorian calendar. The Persian calendar year count starts with the Islamic prophet Muhammad's migration to Medina in 622 CE. So, for instance, January 1, 2016 in the Gregorian calendar would have happened in the year 1392 on the Persian calendar. And then there's calendar systems that aren't in use today, but have existed. So there's the metric calendar that I mentioned earlier that was used for a short time in France. Um, the first day of the year was the autumn equinox, so in September, 
there's 12 months in a year, each 30 days long. And then there were five or six extra days a year, which were just complimentary days designated as national holidays and all put at the end of the year. Each week was 10 days long um, and each month had three weeks. So laborers would get one day off per 10 day week and a half day off on the fifth day, which is probably part of the reason why it wasn't popular. They were used to getting a day off every seven days. And it also conflicted with religious calendars um, and Sunday worship services. This was actually part of the point um, post-revolutionary France was aggressively secular, although many French people continued to be religious. Similar efforts were made in Soviet Russia from 1929 to 1940 to mess with weekends and religious services. So remember that religion is often suppressed in communist states, and they also tend to like to get people to do a lot of work. Um, so essentially they got a weekend. They had a continuous work week. There were no days where factory machines were silent. So a month would be six weeks long and each week would have five days. You did get a rest day, one day a week, but it was offset. So more than, no more than 20% of the workforce was ever taking a rest day. Um, people didn't really like the staggered rest days because the whole point of rest days is that you get time off to spend with your friends and family but unless they were assigned the same rest day as you, this wasn't possible. It became common practice for people to colour code their friends in their address book in accordance with what day their rest day was. Some wonder if the government at the time was consciously trying to undermine families and communities because they made it really hard to basically ever congregate in groups. On the plus side, though, one day off every five days actually increased people's time off they were getting 70 days off a year instead of only 52. In the 30s, they changed a week to be six days long and did kind of take into account families' requests to have a shared rest day. But eventually, in 1940, they just went back to the Gregorian week structure. For those years, though, things would have been super chaotic. So buses would have been running on a five-day week schedules and workplaces were on six-day weeks, and then those in rural areas, so farmers and such, who were not like employed by someone else, who were, you know, mostly running on their own clock, wouldn't have been affected by the reforms at all. So they likely continued their observances of the Gregorian calendar. That said, uh, going back to the Gregorian calendar also came with other very oppressive reforms for ordinary workers quitting your job missing a day's work, or even being over 20 minutes late became criminal offences with mandatory prison sentences. I finally wanted to mention the 13-month calendar designed by Britain Moses V. Cotsworth, who worked for the British Railway. He wanted a calendar of 13 months where each month was exactly four weeks and 28 days long. Each date in the month would fall on a particular day. So you'd know, for instance, that if it was the 15th of the month, that would make it a Monday. So fun fact, uh, every month would have a Friday the 13th. Uh, the extra month would be called Sol, and it would come between June and July. And on the leap years, this would be the month that would carry the extra day. There'd also be an extra day at the end of the year that he'd call Year Day, just an extra day off. All public holidays would be on Monday, so as to make all public holidays three-day weekends. Cotsworth toured the US to get people excited about his calendar, and the only person who really seemed to be was the founder of Kodak, George Eastman. And so Kodak, along with a few other smaller companies, actually used this calendar between 1924 
all the way until 1989. Of course, Kodak employees were of the real world, so they had to abide by the Gregorian calendar, both legally and for practical purposes. So public holidays didn't change, um, but all their internal planning was based on Cotsworth's structure. They just relabeled the 13 months to 13 periods. But obviously, a novel calendar system, even if it's like super smart and super justified, only has a use if other people use it too. Otherwise, it's just a, a different way of marking time. It gets pretty cumbersome to manage multiple calendar systems and to convert dates from Gregorian to your Kodak system and back again. I have some experience with this living in Oxford. So a lot of the students in the town uh, will talk about time in terms of what week of semester something will take place. So, for example, um, say they're having a meeting on the Wednesday of sixth week of Trinity term. But if, like me, you're not an Oxford student, you have no idea what that means. So it's fine for internal communications, but then if you have to work with people outside the university, then you have to translate that time into Gregorian date. At a certain point, it's easier just to use the Gregorian calendar in the first place, though apparently not if you're an Oxford student, but apparently so if you're a Kodak employee. There are other calendars I haven't included here for the sake of time, time, um, but hopefully the wider point I'm making here is clear enough anyway. There are many ways to arrange and define a year. It's interesting to note that calendars generally shape themselves around the phases of the moon or the movement of Earth in relation to the sun or other celestial bodies. There's something non-arbitrary about the sky, it seems, although precisely when you celebrate a new year is very variable. Even after the Julian calendar came into play and New Year was defined as January 1st, people through the Roman Empire often kept traditional New Year celebrations. These times often correspond with an equinox or solstice. So in a basic way, when you say one year is over and the next year has begun, you're saying that the Earth has journeyed around the sun once. But your start date could be pretty much at any point. As well, calendars seem particularly arbitrary when politics, ideologies and beliefs come to shape them. We like to call the time when the sun is in the middle of the sky midday or noon, at least roughly, and the time in the middle of sunrise and sunset is midnight, again roughly. Um, because this happens at different times in different places, we need time zones. The world has some awfully strange time zones, though. If you cross the land border between Afghanistan and China, you'll need to turn your clock three and a half hours forward. This is because all of China, which is a very large and wide landmass, is on the same time zone. Geographically, it should probably have about five different time zones, but the whole country adopts Beijing's time zone. The unified time zone was decided for political reasons related to national unity and whatnot, but it doesn't mean all people observe this official decision, especially in the nation's west, where the biggest discrepancy between the time it says on the clock and the time it seems to be outside happens. Spain is just south of the United Kingdom, so it would make sense for them to be on the same time zone, but it isn't. It's on the same time zone as Western Europe, so including Germany and Italy. The reason is because in 1940, the Spanish dictator Franco 
decided he wanted to be on the same time zone as his other dictator friends, Hitler and Mussolini. They never changed it back. Interestingly, if you go to Spain, you might notice people keep hours as though they were in the same time zone as the UK. So they tend to wake up later than their continental European friends, have lunch later, go to sleep later. It kind of goes to show you that you can change a country's time zone, but you can't make them wake up at the same time as Hitler. Australia has some odd time zones. So South Australia is half an hour behind Eastern time. So is the Northern Territory. But the Northern Territory doesn't observe daylight saving. So in the summer, they're an hour and a half behind. Uh, Western Australia is two hours behind and again have no daylight saving. So three hours behind in summer. There's nothing that weird about this, but there are little weird bonuses within this sort of system. So Broken Hill, which is in New South Wales, um, so on the east, is on South Australia time because its main rail links are to South Australia. And then you have Eucla in Western Australia, which is also really close to South Australia. Um, and their time zone puts them 45 minutes ahead of the rest of WA. So then it's either 45 minutes behind or one hour and 45 minutes behind South Australia, depending on if it's daylight savings time. Um, yeah, and that's confusing. On the Chatham Islands in New Zealand, they use a time zone that puts them 45 minutes ahead of the rest of the country. And that kind of reminds me of Christchurch College in Oxford. Anyway, they're, they're five minutes west of London. And so for official internal events, uh, they use their own time zone, which is five minutes behind the rest of the UK. It's really inspiring levels of pedantry. Time zones also get really interesting on the edges, on the arbitrary, somewhat squiggly dateline. So in the Pacific Ocean, where you get places that are the furthest ahead in time in the world and places that are the furthest behind in time. So when it's 8pm on a Sunday in the most easterly parts of Kiribati, it's also 8pm in Honolulu, except it's 8pm on the Saturday. In fact, the amount of time between the earliest time zone and the latest is 26 hours, so more than a day. Countries on the dateline basically get to choose if they want to be a day ahead or behind. Samoa made international news in 2011 when they decided to skip December 30th that year and go to the earlier side of the dateline. So generally what side you're on is a practical decision. If you do more trade in business with Australia and New Zealand, it makes sense to be closer to their time zones. And if you have more to do with the US or you're actually part of it, it makes sense to be later. But to bring this all back to the arbitrary, there's no real reason why the dateline has to be where it is. It was just defined that way by the International Meridian Conference held in 1884 in Washington, D.C. But the non-arbitrary part of it is that the sun is roughly in the middle of the sky at the time before midday. Daylight savings is observed in some parts of the world, um, most of North America, Europe, some parts of the Middle East, New Zealand, Paraguay, Chile, and some parts of Australia as well. Some places observed it for a while and then stopped, some places have never observed it. Daylight savings is basically where you put the clocks forward an hour during summer so that you get more sunshine in the evening, which is when you'll actually use it rather than sleep through it. 
it's pretty pointless if you're close to the equator because you don't have massive differences in the length of the day or the, the amount of sunlight you get in a day. But in other places, it can make sense. So if England didn't have daylight savings, for instance, it'd be sunny in London from 3.45am in the middle of summer, which is really disruptive to sleep. Hardly anyone would be awake to enjoy it. To define sunrise as an hour later, and then you can get an extra hour of daylight later too. It also means you save money on evening energy and lighting costs and that kind of thing. Or it used to. The difference it makes nowadays is pretty minimal. George Hudson, an entomologist, or bug, a bug scientist from New Zealand, proposed a two-hour time shift uh, in 1895. And then seven years later, British builder William Willett also came up with a similar idea of just the one-hour shift, which he proposed to English Parliament. He kept arguing for it until he died in 1915, and people like Winston Churchill and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle agreed with it, that it wasn't accepted in his lifetime. It was during World War I, when Germany was interested in power-saving ideas, that they implemented daylight savings. Then, most of the countries in World War I also implemented them as well. Whether to implement or not implement is somewhat controversial, and it can cause some weirdnesses. So, in the US, Arizona doesn't observe daylight savings time. Arguably, it's because in the hot summer, the only time it's actually cool enough to go outside is after the sunset. So it doesn't really make sense to extend the length of the day at all. That said, members of the native Navajo Nation, whose semi-autonomous territory uh, that spreads across a number of US states, including Arizona, do observe it. So you have people in Arizona both observing and not observing daylight savings. Then there's also the Hopi Reservation, which is surrounded by Navajo land, and the Hopi don't observe daylight savings. So lands that do and don't observe daylight savings are non-contiguous, so you might have to switch your clock back and forth as you travel through the state. It can be a bit confusing, I hear. A kind of similar thing happens in Australia. So Queensland doesn't observe daylight savings when the rest of the East Coast does. So even though it's directly north. Um, which makes sense as well because Queensland's getting quite close to the equator. The actual number of hours of daylight in each day doesn't shift hugely between summer and winter. But then what happens is if you wander from Tweed Heads in New South Wales to Coolangatta, which is not far away, Uh, you have to adjust your watch as well. Experiments with daylight savings can be controversial. In 1970, Britain trialled being on daylight savings time all year round, and people hated it so much that when daylight savings finally ended in 1971, the members of Merton College, and this is just another Oxford story, um, decided that they'd spend an hour between 2am and the the new 2am that you get from adjusting your clock backwards by an hour um they would spend that time walking backwards in an anti-clockwise fashion around their college quad so they do this every year it's like tradition now they dress up in fancy academic robes and drink port it sounds great but oxford is a bastion of these arbitrary traditions so some people really hate daylight savings some people are into it Um, There's some evidence that suggests that the transition to 
and from daylight savings time has been linked to higher heart attack risk, more car accident fatalities. Um, it even correlates with harsher judicial penalties. Uh, but these things are temporary and they come as a result of the sleepiness people get from adjusting their time. It's just like the effects of jet lag or something. In the US in particular, there's some activism around ending daylight savings time, although industries that thrive on longer um, evening daylight hours, like say golf clubs, are very much in favour of daylight saving. There's an article in Slate that describes uh, how confused some people get about daylight saving. So, for instance, they think that the late sunrise in the middle of winter is as a result of daylight savings, um, but it isn't. Um, because daylight savings isn't on in winter, it's just that the position of the earth in relation to the sun means that it's not very sunny in winter. Um, so one mistaken belief is that somehow you're borrowing daylight from winter to have extra in summer. But what you actually do in daylight savings time is essentially borrowing sunlight from the early morning to put in the evening. So you get those old stereotypical complaints as well that somehow daylight savings causes the curtains to fade prematurely because of increased light or this kind of thing. I mean, it's it's not the easiest concept, I guess. Um, and it is somewhat arbitrary since with or without daylight saving, there's going to be a consistent number of daylight hours in any day. It's just a matter of if you want to call sunrise 4am or 5am. So that was the first episode of Everything is Arbitrary. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes, social media links, my Patreon link, um, and other bits and bobs by visiting everythingisarbitrary, or one word, dot com. In future episodes, I'm going to talk to experts on various arbitrary topics. So if you are one or no one, you can also get in touch via the website. Thanks.